The following audio drama is rated PG-13 for parental guidance. Hello, my name is Brian Bradley, writer and creator of 90 Degrees South, an immersive audio drama podcast and the first drama podcast based at the Munson Scott Research Station located at the South Pole. Our story starts as the U.S. government sends a deputy marshal to investigate the continent's first recorded homicide. What starts out as a routine investigation becomes something more bizarre than expected. For consideration, this is 90 Degrees South. Bustamante, Thomas Kelly, and Kendra Jennings. You have hereby been found guilty of sedition, treason, and crimes against the United States of America. By order of President Campbell, you are to be executed by firing squad. This day, 14 June 2024, may God have mercy upon your souls. Now, which one we get to shoot first? I guess that would be me. <sighs> no, 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 man, fuck that. Tell you what, shoot me first, General Electric. Nah, we'll take out the chief troublemaker first. Take that stupid thing off. Traitor, any last words? Okay, Diane, it's 0530 in the morning and it's 14th June, 2022. Midwinter here at the station. Hell, I mean, midwinter here in all of Antarctica. Uh, this is the biggest celebration across the continent. Every station, every nation celebrates. Each has their own unique traditions, but the primary ways to celebrate are the same to each station. 
the station manager gets up and cooks breakfast for all the station's 40 to 60 residents. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, apparently that one hasn't been celebrated since Wainwright arrived down here about five years ago. And I bet you're not surprised one bit. Uh, there are presents, both from people back home that get shipped separately, as well as people who are here over the summer season and left. They always leave a small something for friends they made while on station. We'll open those at midday. Oh, and since it's an official holiday, that means no work. Nobody does anything science-wise. Other than anything critical to keeping the station running, nobody works if they can help it. Lunch Lady Alice and crew have no shortage of cooks, sous chefs, preparers, and gophers. People have fun and activities planned. We'll send greetings and messages over the radio and phone to the other stations. And rumor has it, Mikkel has prepared his famous... Hold on, I had to write this down. Special janitor makings of potato vodka that has orangey flavors and puts chest hairs on chests. Mm. My uh, new drinking buddy, Zeke, dared me. Says he'll try it if I try it. Well, he's throwing the gauntlet, so I can't refuse. And uh, there's a huge feast tonight. There'll be three special cocktail choices, including Mikkel's, which I'm hoping doesn't cause temporary blindness. A seven-course meal with three different main entree selections. Uh, there'll be after-dinner desserts and more cocktails. Oh, get this. I was invited to a very special celebration. It seems Thomas, Patrick, Zeke, and others all get together for what they call Jack's Night. In reference to Jack, Jack Torrance from The Shining. That's the guy Jack Nicholson played in the movie back in the 80s. Uh, to celebrate this tradition... A small group gets together to tell scary stories and try to outdo one another. And I snagged an invite from Mr. Kelly. <laughs> uh, reluctantly, Zeke has agreed to host it in Franklin's fuel room. Thomas and Patrick consider the creepiest part of the entire station, which, yeah. But I still got no idea how they managed to talk him into it. Uh, I gotta admit, though, it's... Uh, it's kind of a big deal around here. You've got elements of Christmas, Thanksgiving, Halloween, St. Patrick's Day, and hell, Cinco de Mayo all in one. And, uh, well, I've decided that I, too, need a bit of a break. Not saying I'm going on vacation, far from it. But after last year, I'm entitled to a day off as well. So, despite major drug smuggling operations and two concurrent investigations notwithstanding, Diane, you may want to sit down because I'm taking the day off. This is U.S. Deputy Marshal Bass Marlowe investigation suspended Monday, 14th June, 2022. Happy midwinter. Or is it merry midwinter? I'll have to ask. Recording stopped. So the police officer met the woman on her porch. The two of them walked to her car in the driveway, investigating the sound she heard each time she stopped the car. And there, on her door handle, was Come on, man. Oh, gosh. I, I guess you all heard that one before, huh? It's the scariest one I have, though. Everybody knows that one, Mr. Kelly. It was old when I was still young, and that was a long time ago. Well, I, I guess I can always tell you about the dermal abrasion I went through one time. Pass. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, fine. Um, Patrick, how about you go next? All right, scary story. 
Scary story, man. Oh, jeez. Okay, okay, hold on. I remember one. I remember reading about this when I was a tiny dude. It was, it was one story in a bunch of scary stories that I bought at oh, it was a school scholastic book fair. Wow, they still do that? Bought me a lot of Garfield books back in the day. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All of us kids used to like love flipping through those catalogs and we would select whatever books looked cool. So back then I was I was a nerd. Like I loved like reading about all the sci-fi, the fantasy, anything really like freaky deaky, loved it. Okay, let's hear what you have. Alright, so so this hombre, driving from his office super late one evening, decided that he should take a shortcut to get home faster. Dumb decision, but let's go. It was 2 a.m. in the morning, and after like a long day, the sooner that he could get home, the faster he could get to those savory microwave pizza rolls. Rather than like take the main roads on the highway, he cut through one of the old dirt roads and remote country two-lane streets which gave him like a straight shot. He'd only ever taken this route one time before and that was during the day. For this dude, it was the middle of the night, it was like 2am. So there was no moon. The sky was overcast so there was no light from the stars or like anything from above. And to make things even spookier, there was a thick fog all around the place on the side of the streets as they were like in forested lowlands, right? My man slowed his speed to remain safe. It would be like 20 minutes for him to like get to the on-ramp and back onto the freeway and so that he could get back to his Chateau de Relaxo. As he drove down these dark and scary roads, his window started to frost up, but it was weird because it was June. He said that there was a low hum coming from the outside of his car, so weird, right? And the forested trees started to look like twisted figures. <laughs> just like just like after you take the hard stuff my cousin Jimmy grows things just change in front of your eyes and like this guy the trees it's like they had arms and they were outstretched as if they were trying to grab him and take him off the road the hairs on his arms and the hairs on the back of his neck started to raise just like when you take Jimmy's good shit and you lay down in a field and you look at the clouds, his mind started to make shapes and forms out of the fog ahead as his headlights would crest over each hill, right? Nervous, he switched on the radio, only to find static. <laughs> station after station, there was nothing but white noise. So he turned the knob up and down the radio line, switched from FM to AM station, turning faster first, but then slowly and methodically. He needed, like, something, anything, just as a connection to the outside world, like 
like needing to maintain. Now, in addition to this static, a very quiet, metallic scratching noise began to be audible over the radio. Every station he passed, that same noise, slowly growing in volume, getting louder and louder. He locked his doors, looked at the cell phone that he had, only to find he had no bars. His eyes went from the road in front of him to the radio dial, the noise getting louder and louder. He struggled to find anything, any kind of signal to connect him, man. And then he looked up to see an animal, like a deer maybe, that whipped in front of his headlights and then just scattered off into the distance. He jerked the wheel to the side, just missing Bambi. Then he thought to himself, that had to be a deer, right? That had to be a deer. But it wasn't right, man. Jimmy shit will do that to you, by the way. It, it's good. But his heart was pounding, adrenaline pumping. He struggled to get his car back to the center of the road. He remembered that up ahead for a few miles was an old dirt road. It was still on the maps, but it hadn't been maintained in decades for, you know, like being so far off the main road. And just as he turned onto that dirt road, his engine started to sputter. The headlights started to flicker, and even the radio began to drop in and out. Now, the last thing he wanted for, was for his car to stall out, right here, in the middle of Nowheresville, and with this weird energy all around him. He continued to search the radio for a signal that he, anything, anything that he could find. The metallic sound growing faster and louder as he went back to the AM stations. Now, his headlights went dark for a few moments, he pulled the knob in and out, trying to get them to turn back on. Now he was safe, he slowed his car, because he had eye troubles adjusting to the total darkness. And finally, on that fourth pull, they came back on. He was just about to miss that turn to the dirt road, but he would have hit a tree. He jerked the steering wheel just in time. And finally, on that off-ramp to the dirt road, he heard a voice on the AM range. A small distance signal, it was like Spanish or hell, maybe even like Portuguese. By the way, Portuguese shit. <laughs> Better than Jimmy, this is, is fucking good. Anyway, this guy, he didn't speak the language, but any voice, anything, doesn't matter the language, he felt that connection. And just as that signal got stronger, the vehicle stopped sputtering. The metallic screech over the radio stopped altogether. Poof, gone. The lights were fine. They didn't flicker, nothing. And soon, he was out of the shortcut. He was clear ready to get onto the highway and minutes away from his casa, man. 
arriving at home. Obviously, this guy couldn't fall asleep. He, he, he was, he was wired, man. So he got up. He searched his bookcase because he remembered that there was one book that he bought years ago about the lore of the town. Like, what? The history, man. And as he sat, he tried to take his mind off the events. He's flipping pages. Then he finds a chapter. One chapter about the road that he was just on. Apparently for decades, vehicles would be found abandoned on the side of the road, dead. No sign of the drivers, doors open, right? Purses and jackets and valuables, their stashes left alone. Always discovered by locals early in the morning, sometimes like after a couple days. So the locals said that whenever weather conditions were just right, there was no moon, there were no stars. It's that pitch black with the fog. Worlds would intertwine. Portals from our reality to others would open and close. And any car passing through would need a tether a signal, anything that would bind them to their own reality before the portals close. If, if they had that connection, that signal, they would pass through safe. If not, anything living in that car would be taken, leaving only the car itself to make it through. The road was closed off a few years later, and like a new bypass was established to just avoid that area. But every so often on that new fancy bypass that just comes close enough to that old dirt road, people swear their engine sputters, their lights flicker, and there is a metallic scratching noise over their radios. <laughs> How's that for a scary story? <laughs> Damn. That gave me some goosebumps. Me too. Wow, that beats my hook on the handle story. That was a story they put in children's books? And that wasn't even amongst the spookiest ones I remember. Like, not, not even the spookiest ones in that book. I just, I liked that one because it's so spine-tingly, right? Well, I liked it. Not ghosts, not vampires or werewolves, just something unknown and not recognizable. Very nicely done. Okay, so now how do we decide who goes next? Oh, Patrick gets to choose since his story was last. Alrighty, um, Duck, Duck, Zeke, you're next. Spooky story, um, right, I gotcha. Okay, well, a lawman knows, and maybe some of you know too, I do not like watching scary movies. However, I've always loved me some old spooky stories, and this here one takes place back in my hometown state of Mississippi. I thought you were from Tennessee. Shh, Tommy, who's telling the story? Oh, sorry. Sorry, Zeke. 
or any of them way. So, it is 1922, summer down south, which if you ain't experienced Mississippi in the summer months, ooh, hot. And keep in mind, it's before air conditioning. This takes place on the Mississippi Delta in Clarksdale, where my family's from. And to think about it, yeah, it was almost 100 years ago, almost exactly. Well, my great-great-uncle Josiah Watkins was working his field. He was a sharecropper, grew wheat, raised hogs. It was him, my great-great-aunt Viola, and their six kids. Now, life back in the 1920 Deep South U.S. is everything you see in the movies and TV, just smellier. And on a farm with hogs in the summer heat, we talking about real stank, B.O. home barbecue. Woo! You from farm people, old man? Can I get an amen? Amen. See, he knows. So, it's early August 1922, the height of the summer heat. It's late in the day and the family's just sitting down to supper. They're talking about what they did that day or whatever little house on the prairie shit happened, excuse my language. Eating food that grew on their farm or in their garden, and there's a knock on the front door. This here is farm country. Ain't no house for five miles in any direction. So people back then didn't just pop in. Yeah, front goes the front door. And here's this hobo. Wait, what's a hobo? A hobo, a bow, a, a tramp, a gentleman of the road, drifter, bomb. Tommy, nowadays they just call him homeless. Oh, okay. I've just never heard that term before. Uh, okay, where was I? Oh, right, right, right. So, here's this hobo. Says his name is Orias. Orias Allegra. And he's been traveling for a long, long time. So he saw the farmhouse, smells that down-home cooking, and he hopes he can get a meal in exchange for doing some work on the farm. Uncle Josiah says, yeah, sure. Viola always cooks more than they can eat anyhow. So, Unc makes him a deal. Tells him if he heads over to the yonder barn, mucks it, sweeps it, slops the hogs, he'll give him two big old turkey legs, potatoes, corn, and even promise to toss in a piece of blueberry cobbler and says he can sleep in the barn for the night if he can deal with that funky-ass thing. Two shake hands on him. It's important. And the hobo gets to work. And my boy does a great job. No slacking, no shortcut. He gets the bomb so clean to this day, there'd be pictures of it hanging up inside of Better Homes and barn magazines all over the South. So, heads back to that farmhouse. Job well done. Tired, man. Ready to get his grub on. He gets on that cobbler. When Unc meets him on the post with a shotgun, Tells him to get on, get on his way. Ain't nothing for you here. Now, Unc shook hands on the deal. He committed himself, gave his word. But, old Josiah was always known to be a lying little bitch-ass hustler. My great uncles on one side, all the same thing, too. Like my grandma B used to say, Zeke, you best not go trust no Watkins. Don't give them no money and don't pass them to play the church. They make change. <laughs> Now, my man Arias, you're about to go out with no scattergun, especially no buckshot filling. Turns around, hits for that gate. Uncle has him covered the whole time. So best not try coming back later that night either. He's gonna shoot first, no warning. Arias reaches that gate, takes out a small gold pocket knife, and carves something on the fence, saying Unc would never see him again 
Oh, that he promises, but says he will get his payment due, and sooner than unclean. So, the size stays up that night. Doesn't see any sign of the hobo. Thinks he scared him off for good. Days go by without no sign of him. Then a week, the sign and his kids continue working the farm just as they always did. After about two weeks, they start to notice odd things around. Nothing big or obvious at first, just little things. Water from the well, they started to taste a bit off. The wheat they harvested looks like it got burnt, but only in the grains make it almost useless. The cows they kept for milk all start producing sour. And a few weeks later, things start to get interesting. In the girls' room, they see here knocking on the walls all throughout the night. The boys get woke up by a hog screeching. They go out to find one slaughtered. Big, huge dog prints in the dirt all around the pen. Friends, family, even the local reverend, when they come by, they say that house had been touched by old Scratch himself. Ain't nothing good taking place there. They had them a hoodoo curse on the house, a hoodoo curse on the family, and Uncle Josiah and Aunt Viola. Later that same month, Aunt Viola, she takes to get real sick. Takes to her bed and complained that every time she coughed, she coughed up some stones from her bed. <laughs> My great-uncle Nestor got kicked in the head by the family horse when he wasn't looking, died right there on the spot. Crops start to wither. Nearby family and church friends won't dare come to their house for fear that that hoodoo spell might rub off on them too. So, time was coming up with Josiah. Well, he'd have to give the landowner his cut of the crops since uncle's only a sharecropper. He knew he wouldn't have enough to pay off the owner and keep feeding his family. Now, Uncle Josiah, well, according to Grandma B, Josiah wasn't no man of God. He turned his back on the Almighty years ago. Aunt Viola and the kids, now that's a different story. They knew, they believed. Praise God. He would beg their daddy to come with them. Uncle Josiah, he had no part of it. He wasn't going to no church. So, as the family was all getting the church home, Uncle, he goes up the dirt drive. Starts looking what's left of his fields, trying to figure out how to make everything work out. Well, in no certain terms, he knew he was in the shit. Excuse my language, sorry. He turned to go back to the gate, and in the house, he remembers what old Orias did as he left. He looked down at that gatepost and saw a mess of carved symbols and whatnot. Unc took out his own pocket knife, tried to scratch him out, only to have the blade snap in half in his hand. Uh, he goes back to the house, gets some paint, tries to paint over it, but the paint won't stick, just drips down the post and the grass below, making a hell of a mess. Yeah, Josiah starts to panic now, goes and gets himself a huge axe. Said he'd rather make kindling and rebuild his fence than let some drifter hobo hoodoo man drive him out. Uncle lifts that axe and comes down that post the carvings hard as he could. They exploded like a cannon, a piece of metal went all over the place, including into Uncle Josiah's forehead. Fell the ground dead as a door now. Axe handle still gripped in both hands, tight. Well, they go to bury Josiah the next day. Somehow I managed to talk to Reverend, the choir, and a couple of deacons to show up so they can make sure Uncle gets a good Baptist send-off. They did a big old hole in the back house, back field where they had a big old elm. Reverend reads from the good book. Choir all sings their songs. People say words over them, then they part. As the story goes, that night as Bill was just washing up after supper, 
comes and knocks at the front door again. She don't think much of it. People, family or somebody showed up late with well wishes with food or something like that. Brother goes to open the door. There ain't nobody there. And that front porch swing, which is swinging back in the boat. She sees somebody left a note. And on top of that note, is that gold pocket knife holding it down. She goes over there and looks at that knife and sees her husband's name etched in the handle. She goes to pick it up and read the note. And it says, with old letters, debt paid in full. Next day, people in that town said they saw a man. Looked exactly like Arias. Talking with this old boy Bobby, just outside of Clarksdale. Bobby, see, he was this two-bit string plucker. Used to play guitar with Charlie Parker and Bill Brown in local bars. Sunhouse, too. Hold up, hold up, hold up. You're telling me, Arias, the guy who cursed your great-uncle Josiah, is the same man who made a deal with Robert Johnson, guitar player in Mississippi at the Crossroads? I thought the Devil's Crossroads was in Georgia. No, you're probably thinking of that song, Devil Went Down to Georgia. Uh, are you serious? <laughs> the devil wouldn't be caught dead in Georgia. He detests pecan nuts more than anything on the planet. Things don't have a place in pie, let alone in any food. Now, as for the crossroads story, that wasn't the morning star either. That was a demon, Gemorax. And it wasn't even intentional that he tricked Robert Johnson. Gemerax got wasted on local moonshine and reefer. He stumbled into this local bar, half out of it, and some kid asked him to watch his guitar while he went outside to take a leak. Jemmy tuned it, and by doing so, the next human who picked it up would have perfect pitch and celestial talent. <sighs> God. Goes without saying, HR was pissed once it was reported. After that, hmm, we all had to go through training refresher courses. Compliance and legal mandated no booze or drugs would be allowed to be expensed to corporate for close to 40 years afterwards. Gemerax is a moronic chump. He shouldn't be celebrated at the crossroads. He should be a cautionary tale. Apologies. Well, it kind of already is one. No, a cautionary tale for us demons. Not you hairless apes. Hey, don't go ruin my family story here, Debbie Demon Downer. You just hush up and be happy I'm letting you have company. Shit. Excuse me. Okay, now I choose. Um, Dr. Jennings, you're the new one here. You think you're up for Sharon? Oh, 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 uh, I am, uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I'm not sure I have anything that could compete with your wonderful stories. Oh, this isn't a competition, Doctor. Uh, gosh, nobody is trying to outdo anyone else. Uh, this is just, well, having fun, telling a good story. We just make them scary since it's the midpoint of the winter season. Well, well, it's not my story, but I have one about something that happened to my brother. And he told me about it afterwards. <laughs> awesome sauce. Lay it on us. Let's go. All right, um, I'm, I'm not great at telling stories, um, or anything, but... That's okay. If you had some of the barbecue lawman cooked up today for the ball, well, he ain't much of a cook. <laughs> <laughs> Here goes. Well, uh, so, so this was back in the, 
the early 2000s. Um, back, well, he passed on a couple years after this. Um, sorry. Anyway, um, so he was with the U.S. Marines, 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit, or just MEU Charlie 1-1. Uh, they had established an airbase at the end of uh, 2001, I think it was, southwest of the city of Kandahar. They named it Camp Rhino, their first <coughs> uh, forward operating base in Afghanistan. The Marines and the coalition forces later moved north to the local airport where they set up a new forward operating base, but sorry, I'm, I'm jumping too far ahead. Anyway, so um, as, he, as Devin told me, they had been in the country for a few months now, and word had gotten out that the UN forces established a base in the area. The local militia decided that they were going to take some pot shots at the base, make sure the UN knew they were welcomed, and then run before being shot back at. This took place six or seven times that first month. Always the same thing. Drive close, take a few shots at the walls, and then hightail it out. It went on for like a week or two. Devin had said the Marines had sent out scouts a few nights before things escalated to the same town where the locals would flee back to. The Marines wanted to get familiar with it for when they had to search it. Aerial reconnaissance, though, could only tell you so much. They found a spot a half mile out and watched from a high vantage point, getting a good look inside to see what they could see. And through their field glasses, he said the scouts saw it was a smaller sized village. Uh, every night, the villagers would have a communal meal near the center of the town, and afterwards, the women would clean up and help keep the kids occupied, and the men would go a few more doors down and have some tea and cookies. Although the town was heavily populated with men, only a few dozen were younger and carried weapons, so obviously a hastily arranged militia. Uh, they always had the same daily routines, though. The older men and the boys would tend to the goats, they'd make repairs to the buildings, and the women would stay inside during the day mostly. And the guys with the rifles would walk patrols around the outside, but they didn't really have any regular patterns, so they were kind of sloppy routes. And after a few days of covert operation, the scouts went back to base and they reported all of that in. After the eighth or ninth time of these hit and run attacks happening, the Marines decided, hey, we gotta pursue these guys get them to stop, or at the very least, let the militia know that they knew where they operated from and make them think twice about continuing those attacks. So once the bosses radioed in, giving them permission to formally respond, they got the order to head into the small village and conduct a routine clearing mission. They were to search for and clear out any arms or materials that could be used for conflict. The name of the village was, um, what was it? Uh, Towers, Towers. So, so it's late at night, and the Marines come in on foot from the desert, leaving their vehicles a few miles out. So, well, they didn't want anybody to see them. Um, my brother was in the lead, and they had found the the main house or building or whatever where the militia were held up. So they start to get ready to kick in the door to search for guns. They get the house surrounded. They establish the perimeter. The squad teams get to their designated entry points, and they silently approach the communal building 
and waited for the word to move in. Once they got the word, they entered the building to find it was recently deserted. Warm meals still sat on the table. Hot tea was still steaming, and items were strewn everywhere. They searched around further, and they found a closet in the back with the wall cut out, and the clay was removed to create an exit through the walls and into a hole that was dug out in the next room, so it it led down. Apparently, somehow, the local warlords knew the marines were coming. There was an escape, uh, an exit tunnel that ran back to another structure. The marines broke off into three separate groups. Um, They went house to house to to search for them. They weren't about to go through the underground hand-dug tunnels. Um, Devin said, though, that this was one of the worst situations that they could have been in. They they needed the element of surprise. They they needed to be able to get in, get their objective done, get out before anybody could mobilize. The fact that it was known the Marines were coming meant the militia had time to prepare, and they had time to get set up. Although the scouts said each night was a communal dinner, this particular evening, they didn't see anybody. The cooking fires had recently been put out. All of the buildings which had their doors and windows open in the past evenings were now shuttered. The goats were in their pens, and there was not a sign of anybody to be found. It was at that instant, my brother said he and his team all passed a look to each other, and they didn't have to say it, but they they knew that they were in trouble. Serious trouble. My brother was on one of the three fire teams within his squad, so each fire team had four marines, and there's the squad leader, so 13 marines in all. Nowhere near enough to properly respond to any sort of ambush. Over the radio, their commander orders them to pursue, to find the local militia head and bring him in. Securing weapons was no longer possible, but they couldn't go back empty-handed, and they needed intel on how it was known that they were even coming that night. Devin said he and the three guys that were with him, uh, they went to one building and they got ready to enter. They stacked up on each other, gave their position as ready, but Devin got this, not quite butterfly, but just this sinking feeling in his gut that something wasn't right. But he pushed that feeling down and because he knew he he needed to stay on the mission. He needed to keep his head in the game and in the moment. And he gave the signal that he would k- kick in the door, and he started his 3-2-1 countdown when his helmet radio went off. Danger. Danger, he heard over his call. Hostiles. Hostiles. Trap. He signaled the team to hold, and then quietly back off the structure. He had the fire team pull back and find cover, all while keeping a watch on the building. As they're standing guard, a call comes over the radio that one of the other fire teams had secured the militia leader and even found the cache of weapons that they originally wanted. They were loading the leader and the weapons up and were instructed to regroup and get out of town ASAP. It was right then that the building that my brother and his marines were watching explodes. Had they kicked in that door or thrown in one of those fla- flash flash grenades? Oh yeah, uh, flashbangs. Those, had they entered and started searching, they would have been inside when the building had been set to explode. 
So, with one fire team finding the militia leader, and none of the other marines being in the building when it exploded, they were far enough away and there were no villagers inside, thankfully. Nobody got injured, U.S. Marines or Afghani villager. During the mission debriefing, uh, Devon was asked how he knew opening the main door would have sped up the countdown timer on the explosives that would have take, that would have killed his team. And he said it was the radio transmission. And everybody looked at each other. His fire team said they hadn't heard anything over their radios. And they went back to the recordings of the mission logs. And there was nothing. He said on those recordings you could hear he and his team staffing at the door. You could hear him give the signal to prepare to breach. And a few seconds later, you could hear Devin give the call to fall back. But that voice? There was no recording of the voice he heard. It was a few days later, Devin got the official word through HQ command that our dad had passed away. He had suffered a heart attack at our home in Minnesota. While he looked at the time my dad had passed away, he said it was the exact same time he received that radio warning in town. And after he thought back on it, he swore to the end that it was our dad warning him, that it was his voice. Man, that was some heavy stuff right there. Well, uh, that's, that's the story. And what a story. I don't think you gave yourself enough credit, dear. Huh. Dr. Jennings, I for one believe that it was your pops. Our loved ones, they check in on us from heaven. Watch out for us. That's what I believe, at least. I'd like to think so, Zeke. <laughs> all right, let me go get the holy water and a hose. Gonna get all Winter's Eve misty in that, too. <sighs> okay. Uh, hmm. Okay, sweetie, your turn. Wait, what? You were... The one he lusts for. <laughs> oh, wait. Is that? Oh, it's on you, too. That's good. I was kind of worried it was one sided. I only ever heard his side of things. <laughs> so, tell me, how big is it? How big are we talking? <gasps> Franklin! All right. Let's ease up on that kind of language around the lady counselor. You throw a ball, Don's going to fetch it. You give him a bone, Don's going to chew it. You smack a dog on the nose, he's going to feel so bad and he's such a bad dog. <laughs> but he's not, he's the best dog. We always are. That's the sad thing about living in hell. We don't have any dogs. I, um, uh, I, I don't, we, we don't have anything like that. I, dogs, really? You already have handcuffs. I can Amazon order you some ball gags and whips on the iPad. Franklin. French maid outfit. Okay. My turn for a story. Naughty librarian, maybe? Or a corrupt politician? Oh, they just have politician. I assume the corruption is just implied. Franklin. Franklin. Or maybe a spreader bar, bed, uh, bed stretcher, anything. Franklin, for God's sakes, there is a lady present, and I'm gonna start carving crosses in my bullets. Bass, thank you, but I think I can hold my own here. Sorry, I'll stop. Tried to tell you, low man. 
Yeah, I'll listen to you next time. Mm-hmm, that'll be the day. So, this is a story I heard back in my early days as a deputy marshal. It came out of an official marshal's case file from the West Coast office in McKinleyville, outside of Eureka in Northern California. I'm not sure exactly when, only that it was in the late 1970s, possibly early 80s. The regional marshal's office out of Sacramento got word of the fugitive we've been looking for was hiding out with an old friend in the wilderness outside of a town called Fort Jones. He was spotted by a firewatch ranger who crossed paths with him and his buddy near his lookout tower in Kalamath National Forest. The two were camping over the summer up in the mountains. Once the ranger got back to his station and looked through the mugshots they got every year from Bolos, uh, that's be on the lookout reports, he recognized one of the men and radioed into the ranger's main office, asking them to contact the marshal service. So, a few days later, two state officers, a forest ranger, and three deputy marshals get to the Firewatch Tower. They pour over the maps of the region, find out what would be some of the most likely campsites, as well as get updated on all the grow activities in the region. Grow? Is that what I think it is? <laughs> yeah! Grow! Yeah. Yep. That's what I thought it was. Love a good grow, you know? Does it show? <laughs> yes, the production of marijuana or cannabis. It was the late 1970s or early 80s, and according to the first lady at the time, everybody was supposed to just say no. Well, after a night of researching routes and landmarks, they get a good meal in them, get some rack time and bed down for the search ahead. The next morning, they say their goodbyes to the Firewatch Ranger and tell him they'll radio in if there's any problem. They agree on the trails to take and the order they'll visit each of the camping spots. They anticipate being out there for a week and will either come back with their fugitive or empty-handed and start searching elsewhere. With that, they headed out. It was the last time anybody saw the six alive anyway. In the investigation afterwards, the Firewatch Rangers said for two or three days, a search party would check in regularly. They'd call and report their status multiple times daily, just to update on progress or lack thereof. See if there have been any additional sightings, get weather updates, or any word on approaching them. They radioed in on day three and reported they had checked and cleared the first four campsites. No signs of their man or anybody else for that matter. It was really, really quiet, unusually for the height of camping season. That evening, as the Firewatch Ranger was updating his logbook, he said he heard a radio crackle. No follow-up contact, just that crackle. Then a few minutes later, it happens again. Thinking it could be the search team, he squawked out, asking them for an update. After a few moments, they made contact. Now, the Firewatch said their signal was weak. Obviously, wherever they were, it was at the limit of the transmitting range. The group said they had set up camp an hour ago and heard something off in the distance. Thought it might be a deer or elk by the racket that was being made. They also thought it might be a black bear. They didn't want to fire off their weapons to scare it off for fear of tipping off the fugitive they were in the area. They said banging pots and yelling seemed to work at first, but whatever it was out there, we just come back ten minutes later, getting more adventurous each time. Well, 
Before they left on their search, the Firewatch had given them each canisters of bear spray, telling that it was much more effective to ward off a bear than firearms. He reminded them of this fact, told them to make sure their food was sealed in airtight canisters so any animal wouldn't be drawn into their camp. After a brief back and forth, the party said they were turning in for the evening, but would have a standing watch that night to keep the fire going and make sure whatever was out there stayed out there. After day four, the daily check-in slowed to once a day. Still at the extreme range of transmissions, they said their nocturnal visitors were now shadowing them, paralleling their path from the other side of the ravine. They couldn't spot anything with binoculars due to the dense forest, but they heard them. Thinking it might be the fugitives, they decided to split up. Three of the team went ahead for the nocturnal visitors to continue to tail, while the other three hung back, ready to make for the opposite side of the followers. Once the three in the rear gave their walkie signal, they go for a pincer maneuver, closing their trap, hoping to catch them in a crossfire. It was then they finally left the range of transmission and ability to reach the firewatch station. They uh, were on their own now. But being the late 1970s, most likely there was no shortage of mustaches in that group, so they had that going for them. <laughs> After day five, nothing. Firewatch station reported no further contact. No more check-ins, no more updates, no more requests on weather forecasts. Not a word. The Firewatch radioed back to Kalamath Ranger's office and asked to have the other Firewatch stations try to make contact. The regional ranger's office was central to the other stations out in the forest. They could get the word out quickly. Maybe they were in range of one of the other stations and get their update progress with them. Over the next few hours, multiple attempts were made by all stations, but with no results. Nobody heard from them. Not a peep. The first week went by and the group failed to return on their scheduled date. The forestry service waited another 48 hours and then called them in missing. A massive search and rescue operation commenced. The marshal service, forestry service, state and local police. Even the Army National Guard were called in to search for any sign of the party. Keep in mind now, this is all before the advent of cell phones, GPS positioning, satellite phones, or global reconnaissance and mapping satellites. Other than by a horse, ATV, or on foot, the best you could hope for would be a helicopter search. Two weeks go by, and a radio signal comes in from one of the reservist squads, saying that they had located remains. So. Everybody converges on their location and what they found. Uh, without getting too graphic here, the guard squad had found the fugitives' campsite. Makeshift walls have been put up of felled trees and logs. It looks like the fugitive and his partner had built and reinforced a small hideout. Built themselves a little makeshift fort in the forest. Inside that fort, they found the bodies of the fugitive, his friend, and sadly, the search party of law enforcement officers. They'd all been pummeled and torn limb from limb. Their campsite, their defensive fort, ransacked and damaged. All their firearms had been completely emptied, including the ones of the fugitives they had been hunting. All their mags empty. There was empty shell casings littered all over the ground. Using metal detectors, they found rounds had been fired into trees and logs in all directions. Now see, this is the odd thing. One of the things they could never understand 
is that none of the bodies had any bullet wounds. Whatever they were firing at, it wasn't one another. The party wasn't shooting at the fugitives nor vice versa. Both groups had been all together, firing outwards, out into the forest, into that pitch black. Whatever they were firing at, he was out there in that forest. Other than the rescue party's own and those of the search party and fugitives, no other prints could be found. No tracks, no animals, no people, nothing. A search of several miles in all directions didn't find anything unusual or abnormal. No signs that anybody or anything else had been in that region. Yet, for all the damage and carnage the National Guard had discovered, something had definitely been there. For the next several years, camping was restricted in that region of the National Forest, obviously. The Firewatch Rangers would sometimes report noises coming from the distance, late into the night. An animal or animals would sound yelps and calling, always far off. Officially, after all the investigations had been completed, after all the autopsy and medical examiner reports were filed, it was concluded that all eight individuals had been mauled and killed by a grizzly bear infected with rabies. Despite there being no tracks, signs of spores found nearby, or that the California grizzly went extinct in 1924, it was all quieted up, and nobody dared question the official record. So, what was it supposed to be that that got them? Bigfoot, aliens, 21 Jump Streets, Richard Grieco? Nobody knows. Uh, why do all your stories have to have ghouls or ghosts or us to be considered scary? Seriously. For someone like me, who's seen all the things I've seen, ugh. If you really want to hear about scary and frightening, huh. Oh, all right. I have one for you all. Oh, here we go. Gonna be how God is wrong and evil is good and all that nonsense. Hey, Zeke, come on now. This is supposed to be the night of spooky and scary tales. What's the harm in letting Franklin share his? All right. I'm just telling y'all now, be prepared for some bullshit anti-lesson, how there ain't no righteousness in this world, and it tries to depress us all. Zeke, man, play along, duder. Fine then. Well, let's go then, Sin Sniffer. What you got? This takes place in 1984, San Francisco. For those who weren't around for my older stories, I possessed a guy ten years before this story takes place. A kid who was in university to become a lawyer. I stuck with him, took control when I wanted to, and became one megastar attorney up and down the West Coast. Licensed to practice in California, Oregon, Nevada, and Washington State. <laughs> there is no shortage of legal needs when you live through the 80s. <laughs> oh, it really was Franklin's time to shine. Uh, anyway, we get a call one morning, around 4 a.m. from one of our senior partners. He wants me to head down to the Mission District to the city courthouse where one of our clients who has us on retainer was arrested. 
Some corporate banking firm CEO has been locked up and called our 24-hour emergency line. They want me to get down there and make sure his rights aren't violated and be there for his bail hearing. So, I kicked the rodeo clown and hooked her out of bed, showered all the glitter paste off, and sped down to the sheriff's office in the court complex. Sure enough, Mr. Big Shot Banker is cooling his jets on a cot. <laughs> $8,000 suit looked all wrinkled and like he was sweating through it. <laughs> oh, I, I get him to an interview room. Get him fresh clothes and half-decent food to eat. Get him calmed down so I can get him to tell me what happened. Well, he tells me the night before, he attended a special event held at a penthouse for a Hollywood film star. Their name isn't important, but believe me, you've heard of them. Afterwards, my client and several of his less-than-reputable friends go to a club. Well, not a club, per se, but let's just say you wouldn't find it listed in any phone book, and the preferred menu item at this club was... very underage. Ah... Uh. That's just sick. Now I'm talking... <sighs> young. I get his story out of him, how he was there to indulge, how he was fully aware of what he was doing and had been doing for years. And his friends were there for around an hour before their entertainment came out. At this time, the police burst in to serve a warrant. Turns out one of my client's associates flipped and started naming names. Of my client being one of the bigger names on their list. At the same time they start to raid this underground club, they raid his office, his apartment, and a little house in the country he had thought he managed to keep under the radar. They found enough Polaroids, videos, magazines, and various other evidence where they'd be able to build a substantial case. Uh, we go in front of the magistrate that morning for bail proceedings. I get the guy bail, given no previous record and what I told the court was obviously a smear job and illegal search based upon highly questionable methods. Bail is granted, of course. Our client is holed up in one of his residences on the Alameda shore. Millions upon millions are spent on the defense of this client researching our defense strategies. The right payments are made to the proper people in power. Monies are paid to families of poor means to quiet them and get them to simply go away. Reporters and news veterans are told by their editors and boards of directors to move on to other stories. Many out of fear that they will be named in something similar. My client gets a more than lucrative package to retire from the firm he worked for, to include stock options, bonds, and enough commodities to run a number of third world countries for decades. <sighs> in short, he and his cronies pay to ensure he never has to receive justice, despite the multitude of charges that would have had him disappear from society forever. He won't. All charges dismissed. He, of course, is thankful to the firm, thankful to the partners, and to me, his defense lawyer who helped him go free. And you're proud of that. What? Got scum of the earth, a kit toucher, free and safe from justice. Didn't have to serve one day because he's rich. That right there is evil. Demons are evil. 
evil personified. But even we have rules, Zeke. One of the highest is that the innocent cannot be touched. We cannot compel them, we cannot influence them or tempt them. As long as they are children and retain their innocence, we are forbidden from even making an attempt. Every demon, every imp, every denizen of the pit knows and obeys that rule. Consequences for ignoring it are beyond serious. Trust me, this rule is never broken. This person, however, this human, my client, had no such compunctions or regards for innocence. So after his freedom is purchased and justice paid for, he decides to take a trip to Cambodia, a trip to meet with his colleagues that were of similar appetite. Meet them in a local club that catered to scum and human trash like him. Meet with local providers, if you will, suppliers of these appetites. He went so far as to notify our firm that he'd be out of the country and in the event something might happen, prepaid for a round trip and hotel for me. Just in case. Well, thankfully, I don't always require a plane to travel. As a former angel, I went against the throne and... Uh, well, that story is already well known. For eons. We took our anger and our vengeance out against his most beloved pets, you humans. It fills a void and helps us cope, but with our client now, something new began to manifest. Corruption wasn't sufficient, ruining him wouldn't fill that need. We thrive on sin, <laughs> feast on it, relish it. But with him, his actions, his appetites. What I felt then in that moment was a new yearning. It, it wasn't justice. It wasn't vengeance. It was retribution for causing impurity. <laughs> oh, I found out where his club was, went there in the middle of the night, and got anyone who was without a touch of sin upon them removed from the building. With as fast as we move when not tethered to a human body, it was easy. Found a new temporary host who had just OD'd, took control of their body, and chained down all the doors, all the exits. He may have been able to escape human justice, but he couldn't escape me. Nothing was out of bounds that evening. <laughs> I had hours to adjudicate, hours to administer the 
punishments are levied upon these human trash. It was more than deserved. It was earned. That evening, even the angels, the goody two-shoes of love and forgiveness, wept in happiness over the righteousness delivered. Delivered for the sins they themselves did not want absolved. For the innocence that was soured by their master's most beloved creation. Humans. Sins that I could not allow to go unpunished for one more minute. For the first time in eons. I knew I had found my place. You, humans in your sin, it gets absolved if you find Jesus. The sun. But there are some sins, some actions, you won't ever get to come back from. Those goody two-shoes who won't dare dirty their wings. Leave that for me, and I am more than happy to fill that void. <laughs> where angels won't dare to go, that is where I live. When the bad guys feel whatever evil is in the darkness, that's me. And I loved my job that night. The papers said it was a club fire. Blamed bad wiring, poor adherence to safety codes, and overcrowding. Oh, there was a fire, all right. <laughs> Flames will cleanse everything without prejudice. The truth, evil, crimes, crops, history, even evidence of a demon massacre of the diseased and depraved human mind. The local authorities set the fire to cover up what I had done. What? Horrors they saw delivered upon those pedophiles and sinners. Still alive when they were discovered, by the way. <laughs> With wounds and tortures they endured hours after I had left them. Oh, they begged and pleaded to be killed when the officers arrived. <sighs> Once a monster, always a monster. Monster? <laughs> Tell me, Ezekiel. All your spooky, scary stories. Each one of them requires a monster, a supernatural villain or paranormal source to account for the atrocities done. When evil, villains, and wicked recoil at the depravity from those who proclaim themselves righteous, proclaim themselves heroes, announce themselves pious? <laughs> a monster? Tell me, humans, with what I shared with you, who truly deserves the label monster? Me or you?
This is Brian Bradley. Thank you for listening to our show. We are commercial free and able to do so thanks to our amazing sponsors. You can help support 90 Degrees by visiting our Patreon page. Go to 90degreespodcast.com. That's the number 90 and degreespodcast, all one word, dot com. You'll find a direct link to our Patreon page where you can make a monthly pledge and get shirts, buttons, stickers, or even a shout out as an honorary station pulley. Speaking of, we'd like to send a special shout out to the following pulleys. Nick Wolf, Ernest A. Polron, and Padma Numi. Thank you for your sponsorship. It helps and supports us in so many ways. This has been 90 Degrees South. On behalf of the cast and crew, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you like the episode and are enjoying the series, please remember to give us a like, a share, a tweet, send a raven, or review on iTunes, Audioboom, or your favorite podcast site. It helps us to get the word out and keeps the cold at bay. Until next time. This has been a BMB production.